This week saw Ukrainian forces rapidly taking back huge amounts of territory in the east of the country. And with that came a grim discovery in the recently recaptured northeastern city of Izium. President Zelensky said 450 buried bodies were found and that there were signs of torture on some of the dead, although independent verification is yet to occur. Zelensky also says Ukraine's aim is to reclaim all the parts of the country occupied by Russia, including Crimea. Moscow says their forces are regrouping and will strike back. The special operation that President Putin initially promised would be completed swiftly and with minimal resistance has turned into a long and brutal war of attrition. So why has this war been so brutal so far and what might President Putin have in store given the recent battlefield losses? Nick Gvozdev is Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College. He offered some insights in an interview with The Atlantic online this week. The piece was called Why the Russian Military Brutalises Ukraine. Nick is also editor of Orbis, a journal of world affairs by the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and he holds a PhD in Russian history from Oxford. I spoke with Professor Nick Gvozdev earlier, and I should note this was before the news of the mass graves in Izium broke. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Nick, you were quoted as saying that almost all the atrocities that we've seen in Ukraine targeted people precisely in those parts of Ukraine that are part of the Russian-speaking world and that there appeared to be some strong undercurrents of giving traitors their due recompense. Uh, at the same time, Russian forces, I think, are known for their brutalising tactics wherever they fight. Could you explain for us a little your thinking in focusing on the brutalization of Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine? It's a very important thing to focus on because back in February, in the run-up to the so-called special military operation, a constant theme in Russian media, uh, state media in particular, but also on Russian social media, was the slogan, uh, we don't abandon our own. We don't leave ours to be left behind. Uh, and the sense is that while the Russian military has had a track record of Using brutality as a tool of warfare, we certainly saw this on display in Syria, uh, the sentiment was that Ukraine is different. These are, quote, our people. We are coming to liberate. We are coming to rescue our people from, they kept using the term of a Nazi regime in Ukraine, and beyond it, the idea of the corrupting West, we are reclaiming our people. So the Russians, first of all, expected that they would be welcomed not just simply by the population, but by the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian government officials who were supposed to say, thank God our brothers have arrived at last and, and we are here to welcome them. Uh, but that, as you had said, Putin and others predicted that this would be a relatively quick operation, it would be a liberation, uh, and that's not exactly what happened. And one of the things that's critical to point out is that the resistance wasn't simply from those parts of Ukraine, which historically have been the core of Ukrainian nationalism in yes. the West. This is, this is, these are the areas of the country that even Ukrainian nationalists in the past had questioned how Ukrainian did these, these areas of the country feel. And so in a way, everyone was surprised that you had such a degree of resistance by the local population, by the military, by local officials, and because of that, there is now this sense of a betrayal. Uh, the mm. people who were supposed to welcome us have not. 
and therefore uh, we move from liberation to punishment as the sentiment. And in this past week, uh, we've definitely seen an increase in the invasions of military tactics towards punishment and retribution, power plants, dams, flooding, again, precisely in the areas that were supposed to welcome the Russians and were supposed to become part of, if not Russia itself, at least some new sort of pro-Russian Ukrainian entity. And mm. instead, the sentiment now is punishment and damage, which really goes against uh, what we were hearing six months ago. And Nick Gwazdev, when you say the sentiment is punishment and damage, is that, uh, as far as you're aware, something that's coming as a command from the top in terms of the Russian forces? Or is it, to some extent, a factor of ill-discipline at the lower levels and lack of control of the Russian command over its forces? I think that some of this is sentiment that comes from the top, and that also, again, comes from Russian public intellectuals and the Russian media. Just this uh, past day or so, in one of the leading Russian uh, news debate programs, people on that program were very explicit about uh, it's time to make people suffer. One commentator, she said, we should uh, drive 20 million Ukrainians as refugees by shutting off the power and the light. So some of that is coming from the top, but also some of it is coming from uh, a mix of ill-discipline among some of the forces, frustration by some of these forces. It's clear we've seen the impact of corruption on the mm. morale of the Russian military. And then, of course, today, this extraordinary footage of the CEO, the chief executive officer of the Wagner private military company that was released, showing him uh, out of prison, recruiting, uh, and uh, essentially making the pitch to prisoners, you can stay in jail or you can join the Wagner group and uh, fight in Ukraine, and then uh, you will be given a pardon. And of course, if you're recruiting from a, a hardcore criminal element, that does raise the question of what we're likely to see if we see more of these uh, prison battalions being raised and deployed. On Sunday Extra, we are speaking with Nick Gvozdev, a Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College. Nick, you mentioned that those scenes of recruiting from a, a prison, I suppose that leads to the question of if the war is going to become a longer war of attrition, how important is the decision of whether or not Vladimir Putin tries a general mobilization compared to relying on uh, volunteers or, uh, or semi-coerced volunteers? It's an important uh, point because uh, Ukraine, in contrast, mobilized early. Yes. And of course, Ukrainians are, are motivated. It's an existential issue for Ukrainians. For Russians, it, it doesn't generate that same level of existential angst, which brings people to the recruiting colors. And so therefore, you're forced to fill your manpower needs by uh, you ask for volunteers, you go to the private military contractors, you rely extensively on the militias of the two separatist entities uh, in Ukraine, but there are some gaps developing. And then the question is, should the country go to mobilization? And one of the things we've seen over the last week, ever since the Ukrainian successful counteroffensive in Kharkiv, is the first signs of opposition not coming from the usual suspects, 
but from uh, people, particularly in local governments. Uh, we saw this most notably in St. Petersburg in one of the district councils. Mm. And that, I think, is a sign that people recognize that a general mobilization uh, is going to mean that it's not just simply volunteers from economically depressed parts of Russia for whom the military is really one of the only ways out. And we've seen that disproportionately of the regular Russian military that is fighting uh, in Ukraine. But if a general mobilization means that the sons and daughters of the Russian middle class in Moscow, St. Petersburg, Voronezh, Rostov, would be liable to service. And that, for many people, ceases to be a political action that they may or may not support and becomes an issue of, do I want my son or daughter going uh, to Ukraine to fight and potentially die? So what we've seen is the Kremlin political team uh, has really bent over backwards to try to avoid going to a general mobilization for fear that this may produce a level of societal unrest, uh, which would be problematic uh, for the Kremlin. And again, so we saw this past week, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, threw cold water on the general mobilization issue, says it's not being considered at this point and, and we're not going to do it. And instead, we've seen the leak of Prigozhin's recruitment in prisons, and then the president of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, asking every region of Russia to come up with a thousand volunteers that he uh, promises to train and equip for service uh, in Ukraine. But coming back to the military situation for a minute, what the Ukrainians successfully did in their counteroffensive is to probe for areas of weakness in the Russian line and to realize that the Russians don't have enough people to hold the territory that they've taken. And so when the Ukrainians first in the south and against Kherson, uh, and then pivoting to the Kharkiv region to find those areas of weakness and vulnerability, and that sends a signal uh, to the Russians about either they're going to have to consolidate by withdrawing from more territory uh, or they're going to run into these manpower issues that the last mm. week has definitely demonstrated. If Russia does not move to a general mobilization or if there's not support for that, is in military terms the aim that President Zelensky has stated of reclaiming all the parts of Ukraine occupied by Russia, including Crimea, is that a realistic aim for the forces of Ukraine at the moment? At the moment, perhaps not, because one of the problems is that while Ukraine can push back against areas Russia has occupied since February, uh, the two separatist entities in the Donbass, the Donetsk and Lugansk republics, plus Crimea, have had eight years to fortify. And the military reality is that defense is always easier than offense, and you can defend effectively with less people. So while really it becomes a question of the victory conditions, so to speak, if uh, President Zelensky is committed to getting Ukraine back to where it was uh, as of February 2022, that's feasible. I think with the current level, uh, with the current level of aid coming from the West, getting Ukraine back to 2014 is going to be harder. It's going to be costlier. And then the big wild card question here is, is at what point does the West 
and allies uh, from other parts of the world who have been providing help to Ukraine, at what point does that price tag become too expensive? Mm. Uh, and you can provide a level of aid that helps Ukraine stop the current invasion, but it may start to become too expensive. And I think the, the jury is out on that, whether or not the current levels of aid that uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, uh, other European and other uh, allies around the world have been providing. Is it sufficient to get to 2022 or is it sufficient to get to 20 uh, back to the 2014 borders? And it's not entirely clear yet. The other thing is that the, as the Russians are pushed back, it does increase the possibility that the Russians will move to really unleash not simply the punishment aspects of an air and artillery campaign, but really to, to try to create an effective no man's land uh, between the Ukrainian lines and the Russian ones, which would then be uh, harder to uh, to overcome. This is why the Ukrainians are asking for more advanced sets of weapons, uh, but we're seeing certainly among the Biden administration's team uh, worry about, on the one hand, wanting to help Ukraine, on the other hand, not wanting to uh, run the risk of a dangerous escalation with Russia. And Nick, you mentioned that question of whether the price tag is too expensive in terms of Western allies of Ukraine. How important is the Russia-China relationship in terms of Russia's ability to sustain the sort of long conflict that it appears to be turning into? The Russians have been very disappointed by the Chinese. If we put aside all of the public proclamations of goodwill and partnership and allies of, of the greatest no magnitude, limits, et cetera, yes. no limits and all of that, the reality is China has not really delivered what Russia expected. Two weeks before the Russian invasion, you had senior Russian officials confidently proclaiming that if there were Western sanctions, well, it doesn't matter because our Chinese friends will take care of us. Uh, we don't need Western technology. We don't need Western computer support. We don't need Western equipment for our energy sector. China will provide. And what we've seen is the major Chinese companies uh, still prize their business and trade ties with the United States uh, more than doing fresh business with Russia. So that hasn't panned out. Uh, what we've just seen in Samarkand with the uh, summit between Putin and Xi, a lot of the Russian wish list of a rapid Chinese help to help Russia's energy sector pivot away from Europe towards China. The Chinese have been very reticent in terms of providing the funding. China has not appeared to be very interested in helping to backstop Russia's military procurement by uh, selling stockpiles. And instead, we see the Russians turning to Iran and North Korea to augment their weapons uh, reserves. And of course, uh, Xi Jinping is known for being very indirect and very polite and soft-spoken, but in Chinese terms or in Xi Jinping terms, uh, he read the equivalent of the riot hack to Putin about uh, that this operation in Ukraine is not going well. Uh, the Russian side says, well, he raised certain questions, uh, which we can interpret to mean as, you told me in February that this was going to be quick and easy when you were at the Olympic Games, and now it's September and this isn't going well, and I'm not going to pull your bacon out of the fire. If that's what you're counting on, think again. But we'll all smile for the camera. <laughs> Nick Kvozdev, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thank you very much for having me.
That's Professor Nick Gavosdev, Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College and editor of Orbis, which is a journal of world affairs by the Foreign Policy Research Institute. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.